Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Here we are at episode 100, which is just unbelievable to me. Our first episode was released almost three years ago. It's hard to believe we made it to 100. This conversation with Ira Shore, what you're about to listen to, was recorded in December 2019. It was a day or two after Christmas, and I remember calling him on his home phone number. It was a a lovely conversation, and I've held on to it for quite some time now. When I started the podcast, I set out to keep episodes around 25 minutes. As you can see, this one is, is closer to an hour and a half. I didn't know whether I wanted to share it because there was a part of me that wanted to, to just keep it for myself. What you're about to listen to feels like, like an historical account of someone's life in higher education, but, but most importantly, an account of someone who really dedicated their life to transforming the entire system and structure, the way we think about education. Ira Shore opens up his life. This episode feels more like a story like a personal narrative, something private, something intimate. In some ways, I guess this conversation reminded me a lot of episode one with Mike Rose, which was profoundly special to me. Because I wouldn't be a teacher and this podcast wouldn't exist without having read texts from the likes of Rose and Frieri and Shore and the late great Bell Hooks. I say all this to say, Here we are. It felt like a perfect time to release this conversation with Ira Shore. Stories are meant to be shared. And that's the main reason why I started this podcast. For teachers to share their stories about teaching and for us to to gather around and listen to these different experiences. In this episode, Ira Shore talks about critical pedagogy, questioning the status quo, the ethical responsibility of educators, how his teaching has changed with a new generation of students, writing assessment and negotiation, and his friendship with Paulo Freire. Ira Shore is a professor at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York, where he teaches composition and rhetoric. Shore grew up in the working class area in the South Bronx of New York City. According to Shore, Coming from a working class area had a powerful influence on his thinking, politics, and feelings. In collaboration with Paulo Freire, he has been one of the leading exponents of critical pedagogy. Together, they co-wrote a pedagogy for liberation. Ira, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about critical pedagogy. Can you walk us through those earlier years in the late 1960s? and 70s, when this new transformative approach to education, called critical pedagogy, was beginning to take shape. Take us back to what was going on, and what that was like for you, and and what it meant, or what it could do for teaching writing. Yes. Okay. Uh, So, you know, I'm uh, I'm of the generation that came of age during the 60s and the 70s. And in, in that period, uh, it was the best of times to be young and to be idealistic and utopian and hopeful and so on. And uh, millions of us young people uh, thought that um, 
the world was really going to improve, that uh, we would uh, transform society so that uh, the, the wars would end, especially the Vietnam War that we protested, that racism would end, and uh, so we marched to civil rights, and that the, the planet would be rescued, and so we had our Earth Day on April 22, 1970, and then began the women's movement demanding women's equality, and in that same period we had the start of the gay liberation movement, and we even had uh, a movement called the Grey Panthers, the senior citizens started organizing, and so, so it was like a, a great period of, of popular upheaval and opposition when uh, all the uh, the bottom of society was uh, flooded the stage of history with their demands and their hopes and their uh, their protests. And so this was a great great time in which to be uh, to be young and and to be uh, studying. So I was swept up in that moment and joined just about every movement that uh, started at that time and. Uh, it uh, made me um, gave me like a uh, a launch a launching for a lifetime into uh, believing that um, social justice and a, a humane world were within our reach, and that it was also our responsibility not just to wait for it but to make it happen. That we had to make you know walk into it, walk towards it, and so on. Uh, that included uh, what work did you do? So I was uh, studying uh, for a PhD in literature. I was uh, preparing to become an English uh, professor. So I thought also that uh, the work we do should contribute to that, that, uh, you know, that I didn't stop being a, a hopeful young person uh, when I began teaching in my classrooms and that the classroom also should be a place that pulled us all forward into that new world that uh, so many of us what we uh, we deserve and so on. So I uh, began meeting with other graduate students at that time to talk about uh, this, like uh, what do we do with our literature classes and what do we do with our writing classes, because we were being trained badly to do both, to become literature teachers and also to teach uh, composition and writing as sort of like an afterthought, because that was inherited by the English uh, departments. Uh, in uh, in higher in higher education, so uh, with some other folks, we started experimenting with this and with that. I was oriented in that direction that like uh, the, the classroom should include should be part of this great change that was sweeping the world and and so on. Uh, but I hadn't uh, really studied. I had no mentor, no mentoring. There was no modeling and no mentoring because there was nobody in the older generation. Who, who had embraced a, a critical teaching. We had uh, some uh, star professors that were very charismatic, uh, like um, there was one at the University of Wisconsin at the time, Harvey Goldberg, an absolutely brilliant historical scholar. And uh, he was like a Michel Foucault in uh, his celebrity status. His, when you went to his classes, you had to fight your way in because everybody, was, every square inch of the floor, was, people were sitting and so on. Because when he gave a lecture, he was uh, spectacular. He would uh, close his books, take off his glasses, uh, grab the, the lectern, and then start talking for an hour nonstop in this uh, tra uh, tremendously inspiring story of uh, what had happened in history. So we had that, that model, but it's very hard to copy that because uh, he was a genius. And he was, uh, you know, he was like 30 years older than us and much, well, but uh, he was like our ideal that we wanted 
our education to be that moving and that meaningful. Uh, so uh, that's where I started, and I uh, joined, the, you know, in the the, the times, the um, the, the uh, radical radical times, and uh, then I got my PhD in '71, and um, I had some trouble finding a job because uh, I had been an, uh, an activist. I had been sort of like a student activist in graduate school, and um, made uh, enemies among the. Uh, the uh, key senior faculty in the English program, the English department. So they um, they were, th- this is how you got a job. There was an old boy network, and some senior faculty who you attach yourself to would call senior faculty elsewhere and say, hire this guy. Uh, he's uh, my student. He's uh, good, and blah, blah, blah. And that's how people got jobs. And all the senior faculty were lined up against me because I was involved in uh, various um, movements and protests in the English department and elsewhere. So uh, one of them, in fact, put a poison pen letter in my job file warning uh, prospective uh, departments not to hire me because I was a troublemaker. So while I got, I just about got all straight A's in graduate school and wrote a, uh, a dissertation on Kurt Vonnegut, which I think was the first one ever ever produced in 1970 or so, and uh, but no one would hire me. So I got a PhD, a tremendous record, and I was unemployed and broke. So I decided that I would uh, just uh, go out to California because I had been there once or twice, and the I loved the climate, and the uh, it was nice and warm, and the food was wonderful and multicultural. You could eat anything you want. And also there were a lot of, like, movements underway that attracted me. So I was about to leave for California and just do certain quirks. I heard about a job here and there, and I applied, and I was offered a job at this third-rate marginal community college called Staten Island Community College, which at that time was having a um, a warfare between the liberals and the conservatives in the English department. And the liberals who uh, were in the hiring committee were trying to bring in uh, allies and so on. So they uh, they heard about me and my major professor and actually brought both of us because he was fired too. So I started teaching there, and um, I I must tell you um, uh, I was very happy to be employed because I finally got a paycheck and I could pay my bills and move out and no longer sleep in my um, my parents' uh, sofa bed. I could get you know get an apartment, pay my uh, car insurance, the whole deal. But also, these were working class students and uh, mostly white working class students. And I was born in the white working class, and that's where I grew up. So I grew up speaking a non-standard dialect of English, very urban uh, New York English, and so on. And I had that kind of accent. And I never I dressed sort I dressed down in the period of that in style that time for young people. So when I got there, um, I discovered these were white working class kids who I felt very close to and that uh, my style appealed to them also um, and so on. So uh, it, was, it seemed like a very nice, nice match, but I had no idea how to be a teacher, what it meant to be a teacher, uh, a non-traditional teacher, because I'd only seen traditional teachers. So for the first year or so, I, I taught like I was taught. And the students were very uh, patient with me, and they were very good-natured, and they they put up with me uh, because uh, uh, you know I I was friendly, I wasn't I didn't talk down to them, and but um, I could tell that um, this was not working. So just on my own, I began to 
I asked myself, really, what, what, what's going on here? And um, so I, I tell you what I did. I, I asked myself this. I, you, you, you Irish, or you have a, um, you have a, a, a radical consciousness. That is, you, you are questioning the status quo, and you have been marching in, in various protests and mass movements and so on. So why did you grow up in the working class as a white person, a white boy, who became this like that? And these other students that you're now teaching who are also white working class, this this is not has not really doesn't interest them or it doesn't seem important to them. So I began to study my own uh, development, what uh, mattered, to, how how I became uh, interested in uh, questioning the status quo and radical politics. It occurred to me that. Um, my development just would not would not be that helpful. Uh, so I, I sort of went down a road that didn't lead anywhere because, um, see, I was like, um, I was like academically inclined. I was like a scholastic star in the working class schools I went to. I was always put at the top of the class. I, I always figured out things right away. So I was uh, very good at reading, very good at writing, very good at math. And then I was put into special progress classes. And then I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which was the most elite at that time. And then I went to an elite university. And I left behind all my friends in the white working class who didn't get chosen to be among the top 2 or 3%. Like a certain number of kids in the working class are selected upward to move into the upper, upper ranks where the elite uh, kids um, are dominate, and then we we have to adjust as working class kids. We have to adjust our cultural dissonance, our cultural difference, with our new peers who are all come from higher class uh, backgrounds than we do. But we've been placed there because we we did very well. We were the, the few percent who did very well. Uh, so I thought this is not really what my students at Staten Island Community College who were the C students in high school and couldn't stay in school and and intellectual life just seemed boring and pointless to them. Uh, I, I had to find you know, something else than this. And my own my own story was not really couldn't be repeated and it shouldn't be. Okay. So then I decided I have to, I had to study the students very carefully to get to know them as intimately as possible. So I lived in their neighborhoods and I played basketball with them in the parks, and I ate in their bakeries and in their diners, and so on and so on, and um, and hung out with them and this and that. And I began to become familiar with the way they spoke and what mattered to them and their their culture. And somehow I intuited that I had to make them the subject matter of the writing class. That uh, eventually I I told myself uh, the most important question in critical pedagogy is where does subject matter come from and what do we do with it? So I had to find the subject matter uh, sourced in the students' lives, in their conditions, in their culture, in their ways of speaking, in the problems that they uh, dealt with, in the contradictions of their of their uh, own every everyday lives, in their aspirations in what they purchased, how they ate, how they dressed, how they dated, what their sexual lives were like, and so on and so on. And I had to put, represent that to them as uh, questions and material for writing and reading and studying and so on. So I, I 
somehow I intuited that that was uh, important. Uh, and of course, I, you know, that that time, uh, at the same time, I realized I had been very poorly educated, even though I had a PhD in English and uh, had already started publishing literary papers uh, in, in journals, that I had to start all over again and, and, ed- and re-educate myself uh, with a, uh, an informal uh, doctorate. It's this new doctorate is going to be in, in uh, curriculum and teaching, in, uh, in cognitive development. It was going to be in educational policy, and it was going to be in the history of mass education that I had to understand the institutional framework in which we were all encapsulated, that we're all in what I later discovered Foucault would call a discipline, a disciplinary apparatus called mass education or formal education, which he and Bourdieu and some other theorists identified as one of the very uh, key uh, apparatuses uh, for the, the, what we now call the, uh, the um, formation of human subjects, that human subjects and the, the different, the inequalities, the hierarchies, the differences, and so on, these were constructed through uh, mechanisms in society. Foucault called them uh, disciplines, and uh, Bourdieu called them habitus, and so on and so on. I hadn't read them all then, but I, I intuited that uh, I had to study the institutions through which we were being processed and in which we were now acting. So then I began my own study of all those fields that I just mentioned that had to do with cognitive development, educational policy, and history. And uh, while I was doing that, what I began to write about changed, how I, how I taught a writing class to make it critical, and what I learned about uh, why mass higher education or the community college movement means and what it, why these students are all segregated into lower-funded, uh, lesser campuses than the students who come from uh, higher-income homes, and so on and so on. So uh, while I'm doing that and experimenting with other ways, uh, a colleague of mine said, you know, there's this guy in Brazil who writes about what you're trying. You know, you should read him. So I said, who is he? So he said, it's Paulo Freire. So I said, okay. So I, um, you know, in those early years, in the 70s, I, early 70s, I got Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed in another book, and I started reading. And eventually I realized that uh, that we were moving in the same direction. We were really on the same page, and he was giving a theoretical background and concepts to this approach. And then through him, I went to study Dewey in greater depth because Paulo Freire acknowledged that he stood on the Dewey's, John Dewey's shoulders because Dewey called, um, uh, told us that, um, that uh, children arrive at school ferociously curious about learning and knowledge and uh, want to find out about the world and so on and tell me, teach me. And that by the time they reach high school, they're completely bored and alienated, and the teacher has to use every kind of spectacular device to try to attract their attention. This is what Dewey said 100 years ago. So uh, Dewey said, well, this, this has to do with the fact that, that schools, uh, the school curriculum doesn't include what he called vital interests. That's how his language. That meant the, the concerns of everyday life, what, this, what mattered to the students. And Paulo Freire called them generative themes. Uh, that he discovered in his study of the everyday lives of the uh, the working class students that he that he taught for, 
So I found the language and the frameworks for uh, continuing to develop what I what I had in mind. But really, what we're trying to do is to uh, stop being the kind of people we're being created into, and to become some other kinds of people who question the status quo and uh, take our place, you know, uh, in making policy and not being uh, objects of other people's uh, powers or authority or policies, but making our own. And this was very in line with what uh, Paula Furry understood as like the uh, critical pedagogy or critical literacy or why our non-traditional teaching has to be uh, different than, than the standard model. But look, there's something else here. Eventually I realized that um, there is an ethical component to all this. There's a moral dimension or moral imperative that educators especially have to face. That moral imperative is this, that um, if we don't question the status quo, then we're simply funneling all of our students into the status quo uncritically and asking them to accommodate to the way things are and presenting the way things are as if everything is okay and that this vast amount of time we called education or formal education or mass education year after year and thousands of hours that it somehow it's not involved with uh, the nature of society or the, the justice or the cruelty or the inequality or, or the destruction of the earth or, or racism or uh, gender inequality or all these things that we live with that somehow uh, they're excluded from the subject matters and the, the teaching materials of school. And that as long as we accepted that, then we were now implicated in maintaining an unequal, cruel, and inhumane status quo. And that was immoral and unethical for a professional educator to make that choice. That's what eventually came to my attention, that it became absolutely necessary to, to teach against the status quo precisely because the status quo was unjust, unfair, uh, toxic to the planet Earth and to the human beings in it, um, and, and, uh, and adjusting the vast majority of society into accepting inequality. And what Foucault, uh, later I discovered what Foucault would call it, that he would call it um, uh, docile bodies, or that we were being trained for docility, or to be compliant with the way things, way things are. I can't consider myself an ethical professional educator unless I question the status quo and encourage the students to do, to do the same. You're talking about how you felt this ethical responsibility as an educator to question the status quo and how critical pedagogy provided this framework to do so. It offered an, an opportunity for you to challenge societal norms, systems, structures. You were teaching at a community college. You mentioned this moment when you realized you had to get to know students and their interests, their lives, their worlds. So you did that. How are students taking up this approach to teaching? How are they experiencing this paradigm shift, this move to critical pedagogy? Yes, students expect to be lectured and uh, to be dominated by teacher talk during uh, their time in formal education. And uh, Paula Ferry called this banking pedagogy, where the, the teacher is transferring a lot of uh, information and so on. So the traditional classroom encourages uh, alienation and passivity in the, in the mass student who is uh, just uh, treated as an object and so on. So 
you know, the fact that I believe all these things, that uh, racism is bad or that the planet must be uh, rescued and uh, the economic inequality uh, is uh, stealing our livelihood, the fact that this is, I consider most of it, I can't say those things. And I don't say those things in the classroom. And I, I never make a speech in the classroom. I, I taught for 48 years now, and I, I just don't lecture in the classroom. My job, uh, what I discovered I had to do was pose problems based in the uh, live, everyday lives of the students and that those problems had to be posed legibly. They had to be readable. Legible means readable, understandable to the students and that I uh, certainly could not lecture them because they always, they're always students in community colleges and, and working class students and lower middle class students are always presented with um, uh, teachers who are um, socially higher than them, better than them. Uh, that is, uh, we're better educated, we're better spoken, we don't make grammatical errors, uh, we're, uh, we have proper hygiene, uh, we come to class properly dressed, and so on. So that we, we automatically, uh, our, our very bodies and uh, voices are reproach to the, uh, the non-elite um, style or uh, position of the students that we teach. So we have to be very sensitive to how we use our voices and, and bodies in, in the classroom. So I learned uh, that the first year I was teaching, I was, t- I was doing a lot of talking and, you know, presenting all kinds of uh, grammatical exercises and this and that. Then I learned that I had to, like, um, more, uh, in, that I had to change the, uh, the register of my voice. My voice had to become interrogative and not declarative. That is, the declarative voice is constantly uh, providing um, commentary and material to be listened to and uh, to be mentioned, uh, to be memorized. That's like the lecture voice, the declarative voice. And I had to uh, adopt a a very uh, interrogative posture. I was always posing questions, posing problems, asking students leading questions so that to draw out any comments they made that the more they spoke in the classroom, the more they were engaging the material, and the more their expressions taught me how they thought about this material and themselves in the world. That I I had to hear from them language use that taught me how to speak back to them uh, using their words so as to draw their words and their concerns out further. And that's the dialogic process. And then, of course, when I studied Paulo Freire, I discovered that um, the dialogue was a very uh, powerful feature of his of his uh, approach, as well as the generative theme that's based in student uh, cu- uh, culture. Uh, so, uh, so first, I had I had to learn that I couldn't lecture about any of the ideologies or politics that uh, I believed in. The second thing I learned is is that. Um, I had to I had to develop for uh, these students uh, activities that engaged them and that uh, drew them into reading and writing and thinking and and, and debating. So then I needed uh, very compelling themes or issues or materials that would um, uh, uh, be uh, very uh, legible to them, but also that uh, would provoke them into uh, discussion and inquiry and so on. So uh, I began to uh, try to uh, combine uh, two things in this method, and 
You can see this in the first book that I published uh, called Critical Teaching in Everyday Life that I wrote 40 years ago, where I'm constantly preoccupied with uh, what kind of problems am I posing, how do they relate to the everyday lives of the students, and how legible is this problem that I pose to the students' understanding so they can they can respond back. And you'll see that I put all kinds of like frameworks and um, methods in it to um, for the students to work through in, in, re, in responding. So I understand this is a, a very uh, different way of uh, teacher training, teacher education, or, or professional approach that like I'm questioning the students and making their discourse uh, uh, crucial to the success of the class, but never leaving their discourse alone. Now, I have to say that. I'm not just endorsing the way they talk, speak, write, read or see the world or interact with the world. I want to draw out that circumstance and put it on the table for all of us to examine and question. See, this is the critical part of it, that because we are all, because we're all uh, subjects formed intensely inside this, the disciplinary apparatus of the status quo, whether that's a mass education, Mass media, uh, mass consumerism, um, every everyday life, the family life, all these institutions intensely form us and teach us what is good, what is possible, and what exists in the world. And they sort of like restrict our imaginations and uh, of how to understand uh, what's possible in human life and so on, and what's good in human human life. So because we're all intensely formed. If we if we begin a dialogic classroom instead of a lecture classroom and this, and learn enough about this, the actual students in front of us to put their conditions and their everyday lives into uh, a, a problem, pose it as a problem, uh, then the next thing is that um, we, our job is not to uh, endorse it or leave it alone and say, oh, that's wonderful, now that you've, you've said it. So this is not like sort of like... Uh, an antiquary's, uh, antiquarian uh, search for the, the authentic um, productions of everyday life, that uh, we're not going on like a, um, a search for what do people do in everyday life alone. Once we search that out, we now have to ask folks to join us now in a dialogic inquiry about what does this mean, how did it come to be, and how do we understand uh, what it does for us and to us, and and why why do we persist in doing it this way? Now that's a very delicate and and challenging uh, process for for a teacher to engage. But that's how I understand what critical literacy means: that we 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 draw out from students uh, the materials, and then we, when it's on the table. And, and understandable to them and um, meaningful to them, then we have to lead a questioning process to move on to deeper levels of inquiry. Now, here's the next stage. In those deeper levels of inquiry, uh, my job is to now introduce texts. I make a distinction between two kinds of texts, the official text and the unofficial text. When I pose problems that are legible to students and they agree to enter into a, an inquiry or a dialogue with me about it, everything they write and say uh, about it, I consider that the unofficial text because it's not published, it's not printed, it's 
not endorsed by anybody and so on. These are their spontaneous uh, utterances about whatever we're, we're saying. So I, my job first is to bring out, to produce a rich utterance of unofficial texts from the students. Now, once those unofficial texts are, are out on the thing, I, my speech pattern, I speak the official text. I speak it because I've been trained in the university. I've been professionalized and I, I have a doctorate. So my speech habits are different than theirs. So when I start speaking about it, I immediately begin a sort of like a, an encounter between the unofficial uh, text spoken by the students and the official text the, in, the, in the linguistic formality of the teacher's voice. So I have to do two things. First, I have to now create an idiom, what I, I call the third idiom, which I wrote about in my books, the third idiom. That is, even though I'm going to speak in a, a higher status discourse than the students offer, I have to infuse into my discourse, my utterances, uh, common expressions and common ways of speaking that make my speech habit as the teacher not detached from theirs, but somehow bleeding into or crossing the border into theirs. And what I have to uh, model for them is now to ask them who speak everyday uh, dialects and the unofficial discourse to adopt some of the, the formal the formal uh, me mechanisms, uh, the formal discourse that I use and some of the formal concepts I, I suggest and to try to, to, to encourage them also to move towards that third idiom where we're trying to invent a different discourse than both of us brought to class. Now, if that succeeds, then we're, we're beginning to reinvent our own, our own uh, literacy, our own literate, our own literate habits. Now, look, the formal, uh, the official text is not only carried by, by the quality of my discourse because I'm, I speak high-status English or high-status discourse. It's also carried by um, two things, the subject matters, what I talk about it and how I talk about it, and secondly, uh, printed matter outside the, the spoken exchanges that we, that we engage in. So my other task is now to search appropriate printed matter to engage or introduce into, into the dialogue that enhances uh, the discussion, but uh, follows the same requirements, that it has to be legible, that is, it can't be in a, um, an it can't be so abstract and conceptual and scholastic that the, the students can't make heads or tails of it or the struggle to penetrate it is, is too great at that level of the development. So I have to find mass media sources that are attempting to engage these topics that the students uh, live with and that are bringing up, but engage them also by bringing in uh, more uh, theoretical material, more background sources, more conceptual frameworks, and to try to gradually introduce that so that there's now a, a textual component to the discursive one, to the, to the spoken one. And that's, that's the next, that's what I, when I say to you, how can we uh, move towards a deeper dialogic inquiry? That's what I mean. In A Pedagogy for Liberation with Paulo Freire, Freire asks you to talk more about how you motivate students. You say, quote, the problem of motivation hangs over schools like a rain cloud, end quote. You talk about curriculum, overcrowded rooms, 
economic labor conditions and other constraints that, that foster a lack of motivation. And then you mentioned pedagogical strategies that help deconstruct those limitations. For example, you talk about restraining your own voice so that students can talk more, something that, that you've already shared in this conversation. You also talk about the importance of destabilizing order and structure for a more organic, authentic, liberating learning experience. I have two questions since Pedagogy for Liberation was published in, in 1987. One, I'm curious about your current thoughts on the problems of motivation and education in the classroom. And two, I'm also interested in what strategies you've adopted or altered to confront the same problems or perhaps new problems given our current generation of students. Right. Uh, look, you're absolutely right. And that times change. And when times change, uh, the, the, the formation of the human subjects in any time changes. So that we're, we're now uh, living in different conditions than when I began almost 50 years ago. So, of course, uh, we, we have to ask what to do. So, look, um, when I started teaching in 1971 at the, this community college, uh, there was no tuition and there was open admissions at the same time. And this was a, a very radically democratic uh, joint policy that was won by massive student uh, protests in 1969 here in New York. So uh, this meant that um, at the start of every semester, uh, students did not have to come up with a big tuition check before they could uh, get access, okay? The second uh, thing is that uh, their, high, their bad high school educations were not held against them, and they were not tested and um, subordinated into a remedial sub-college, as Burton Clark uh, called it in his, uh, in his very famous early study of community colleges called the Open Door College, came out in 1960. So you might say that uh, because of the mass movements of that time, that uh, in institutions like the one I was at was compelled to be a much more friendlier place to non-elite students than typical, than the status quo typically arranged, which meant you don't have to pay us, uh, you don't have to come up with a big check, and you, you, we're not going to hold your high school grades against you. We're going to start. This is like a fresh start and so on. Okay, that's good. So uh, since that time, there was a five-year uh, war that we fought in the 1970s to try to defend open admissions and free tuition, and we lost that war, and that was an historic defeat. The status quo insisted on forcing our working-class students to pay tuition for, for their, uh, for their uh, undergraduate degrees, and it, for, it forced them into very tracked curriculum in higher education. That is, they, uh, they, they were not allowed, uh, the, the C students in high school in New York were no longer allowed to register for the senior colleges in the CUNY system. They, had to force, they were forced to go to the community colleges. And at the community colleges, they now had to face a battery of very oppressive tests in reading, writing, and math that grew into a vast remedial uh, uh, empire that uh, produced an enormous amount of failure. And eventually they, they took remedial course after remedial course for no credit for which they had to pay uh, tuition, and their progress towards the degree was uh, tremendously obstructed. So this became 
the the working class experience of uh, City University after 1976. So you see, I started at a uh, open admissions, free tuition university, and the students who, who came in were much more relaxed and uh, uh, open or friendly or whatever. They 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 weren't under attack and so on. And that uh, so my fumbling around, you know, to figure out, you know, what what does a critical teacher do? To make a difference, uh, they were patient with it, and uh, they, uh, they they put up with it, and I was very grateful. But decade by decade after that, the vocational and uh, financial anxiety of the students accelerated, and that was uh, that was a direct uh, result of, the poly- of what we call neoliberalism, which I'm sure you've heard the word. That now uh, all everything had to uh, have a bottom line and had to be uh, organized uh, into a revenue stream, and the public sector became looted: the public parks, the public housing, the public hospitals, the public schools, the public universities. Anything in the public sector was now was going to be looted over the next 40 years, from the late 70s till today. And the or, or the assets and the uh, the revenue the um, uh, the budgets needed to maintain the public sector were going to be drained and transferred to the private sector. So uh, um, this was a, an enormous attack on the uh, needs of the uh, of the students. And in addition, their wages were frozen while the cost of living kept increasing. So the uh, minimum wage has not gone up in 40 years, and so on and so on. So, look, uh, how could all these drastic neoliberal attacks on, on the, the majority of America not have a, an effect on uh, the classrooms where we, we, all, we all met? So decade by decade, it began to undermine uh, the, um, uh, the, how I put it, the openness of students to uh, experiments. And, you know, when you get involved in experiments, you have to be willing to put up with dead ends. The things don't, some things just don't work out and that you have to like be patient with it and tolerate it and then uh, try, try something else. So when you're paying so much tuition for a course and you have so much trouble getting into the course because the courses were cut, uh, uh, it was harder to get access to courses, classes became larger, so uh, uh, the teachers were more uh, dealing with more uh, people at once and, and then also Many, many of the courses became a majority of the courses became became taught by the contingent labor we called adjuncts, who were famously known as the freeway flyers, running from campus to campus to try to earn a living despite their Ph PhDs. So look, the conditions degenerated terribly. Now, first thing I want to say is that this is not properly a pedagogical problem. Now, if you ask me, well, what's the pedagogy that solves that? That is the wrong first question to ask. The first question to ask is, how do we gain the political power to push back against neoliberalism in school and society? This is a systemic problem of a society uh, who uh, being looted by the minority, the 1%, who have captured government, the, uh, the industry, and the mass media, and control also uh, the school system, and are able to transfer the, the wealth we need to operate in the public sector to, to them in the private sector. This is a political problem of power, and that we must organize 
to get power in society so as to stop this looting and this raiding of our uh, national wealth and of our uh, standards of living. And that's the first question. That means outside the classroom is where you fight and gain the power to, uh, to teach well in the classroom. So here's what I often say to folks. The classroom cannot be managed from the outside, and the classroom cannot be defended from the inside. That is the, the essential political problem of this moment. That is, there is tremendous management, outside management of the classroom via imposed technology and required textbooks and standardized testing. All of this comes from outside the classroom and trying to manage what the educator and the students are doing inside the classroom. And that's a recipe for a disastrous failure of schooling. The second thing is, is that if we want to rescue the classroom, and actually find a learning process that's uh, critical and student-centered, we can't do that in the classroom. We have to leave the classroom and organize ourselves into mass movements that fight back against uh, the authorities uh, in the private and public sector who are imposing these, these draconian conditions on us. So the first thing is to recognize that the ter terrible conditions we work under now and that are in many different sectors, including education, that it's not uh, appropriately, uh, firstly, a pedagogical problem. Okay. So the first thing I'm doing, I, I, jo I have joined in the last 40 years since all these uh, texts from above have been uh, burdening us. I have joined every movement and political organization that I think is uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, deal with it, to solve it in society, and I still do. And uh, I've, I've been a member of the Green Party. I've been supporting Bernie Sanders through uh, two election uh, cycles. I also support other organizations and so on. So I think I have to go out of the classroom and I have to become an activist, a citizen activist in society. I'm going to rescue civic life from, from destruction. But look, I'm also a teacher. So I have to go to the classroom, and I have to ask myself, okay, so what, what are we going to do? So look, I've been, I've been um, uh, remodeling my critical pedagogy decade, decade by decade. That is, I, um, I've been um, trying the uh, negotiated uh, curriculum that I wrote about in um, when students have power in terms of uh, doing um, a democratic uh, contracting of the uh, grading system. But I've also uh, begun trying to focus on the, um, the, vo the vocational terrorism that uh, burdens so many students. That is, that they're so, they, everything they need costs so much. And every time they work, they're paid so little. And uh, especially around rent, and uh, there's so many of them are, have trouble finding jobs and so on. So I've started to uh, see, I've made, I studied. I study statistics a lot and databases. I'm constantly studying databases and statistics to try to understand um, uh, the mathematic, the math, the quantitative uh, look of uh, these last 40 years. Okay. Now I bring, I, then I decide uh, how can I integrate like a, a data, a data map, a statistical chart into a generative discussion. So you see, when I go to the official text, I bring in not only mass media materials that help explain uh, why women are paid so much less than men or, or, or why uh, uh, black families have only one-tenth the wealth of white families. And so these are 
these are uh, statistics or data, but they're also stories I can bring in in, uh, in written text, but I also try now to bring in the quantitative uh, version of it. So what I'm doing is uh, I, I'm trying to test what I call an approach called stories in the numbers. That is, when we look at a data chart that tells us, starting in the late 70s, productivity or the, the wealth generated by our society began to be drastically captured by the 1%, while the, the rest of us remained flat. Can we read a data chart, and, uh, which is uh, quantitative and, and mathematical, can we now write a text that tells textually the story of, of what that's telling us? So that's what I've been experimenting in because of the overwhelming uh, vocational anxiety and uh, anger that students bring to class that I have to face the um, the money problems that are, that I'm uh, that they that they that they live with. So that's what I want to uh, try to write about now is like how that looks. When you mention financial anxiety and financial burdens, I immediately thought of student loans, student debt, and this feeling of stagnation, of never saving, of constantly owing is a burden that student loans have caused me and honestly my family. And the sheer quantity of student loan debt that has amassed in just two decades is completely unfathomable. You and I know, Ira, student loans affect a specific kind of student, students that that don't have the financial resources. It doesn't affect that 1%. Going back to what you said earlier, I think we, we do have an ethical responsibility as educators to have these conversations with students in our classes. Right. It's absolutely crucial. And uh, you have, I make this distinction that uh, this uh, neoliberal attack on the majority is uh, not primarily, not first of all, a pedagogical problem, that it's a political problem of power in society that we can only solve by leaving the classroom. But then we are also classroom teachers, and we need ways of uh, teaching so that uh, we, we teach in favor of our students who are suffering uh, through this. So, uh, look, uh, uh, 40, 50 years ago when I began, uh, it was uh, common for um, – I would look up and a student would be asleep, okay? They would like their head on things. So, you know, I, I would wake them up, and I, they said, there's one, sometimes they would tell me they haven't eaten yet today. I said, uh, why not? She says, I'm broke. Okay. So in those days, I would make small loans to students, like for lunch. Okay. And uh, it, you know, I, it was within my um, resources. I had enough money to give lunch money to students. Also, some students would come to me and say that they, they're broke. They, they don't have enough money to get back across the bridge for the tolls. So I would lend them money uh, for that. Okay. All right. It is so far beyond me now. Do you understand the difference? I want to tell you one other thing. Okay, look. So uh, I, here's what I do. All right, it's Christmas time. And in the, in the working class and the lower middle class, there's a lot of seasonal hiring, say, from November through New Year's, late November, Thanksgiving to New Year's. Uh, the amount of business done is enormous. It's equal to the rest of the year in the six weeks. So companies are required to suddenly greatly increase their staffs because they can't handle the flow. So every time I see a company advertising, you know, part-time work, 
you know, starting in uh, around Thanksgiving time, and they, they're offering $14 an hour, you know, or $11 an hour. I bring all these ads, I pull them off the board, I bring them all to class, I announce them at the start of class. Because I, I want to begin with a, an address of their uh, primary problem, which is earning a living. And I, and I tell you, this is UPS is hiring here, and the post office is hiring here, and Macy's is hiring there, and so on and so on. Okay, here's the second thing I do, that I'm constantly looking out to see uh, where labor markets are, uh, are very short on labor. Like uh, when there's a surplus of labor, wages go down. When there's a shortage of labor, wages go up. So I bring in articles like, for example, um, there's a shortage of like uh, long-distance truck drivers. And uh, there's a shortage of like energy workers out in Nebraska and so on and so on. So I'll say, look, you could leave New York today and you could be making $30 an hour here or, or there. So uh, I want them to – because I'm, I, I follow the news intensely every day. I read the New York Times from cover to cover every day. I'm like a, a well-informed mediator to basically uh, lesser-informed students who, who don't – uh, pay attention to these things the way, way I do. So another responsibility I have is I announced uh, jobs. Like I also said, look, uh, and then it came up and it turned out that in New York City, uh, there are about 300,000 uh, Internet workers in New York, uh, you know, uh, high tech. Like um, New York has about three and a half million uh, folks working and about 10 percent are uh, doing something with tech. And of those 300,000, half of them do not have college degrees. And they're earning sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year because high tech pays so much, and there's a shortage of labor in this. So with this, so I bring the articles to class, and I say, look, uh, some of you already have tech skills. Uh, you, you know tech better than I do, and uh, if uh, I want you to know that you could go into Manhattan and uh, that there are tech jobs there paying sixty grand a year, and you don't need a college degree. And so I bring that in, and, and then also there's a, a like a, um, what do they call it, a, um, a proprietary college that has a three-month course that will teach you how to code. And at the end, they, uh, play, over 90% of their graduates are being placed in jobs like at sixty dollars to $80,000 a year. So I tell them about too, because I, I, I want them to know about these alternatives. And these alternatives directly address, address the occupationalism forced on every sector of society by the neoliberal period, that occupationalism is that everything must be connected to the dollar sign and to uh, work of some kind. And that occupationalism has created this vocational anxiety. Even though I'm trying to take their side and say, look, there's these jobs here, these jobs there, this is not a solution. This is not an answer to the problem. This is only a Band-Aid that some of them may get some uh, temporary help. But it also announces the teacher as on their side that I'm now making a choice about uh, how I understand uh, us in the world and that I'm, I'm taking seriously their, their condition. And secondly, that in no way does this authorize me to abandon the, the power struggle outside the classroom to change all these awful conditions. Ira, let's talk about assessment and how you talk with students about grades and, and how you reconstruct assessment through critical pedagogy. And when students have power, negotiating authority in a critical pedagogy, which was published in 1996, 
You talk about the importance of negotiation and write about how course contracts help democratize learning. So you invite students to negotiate and co-construct writing assessment with you. What have you learned the most about this process of negotiating assessment with students? Okay, in my classrooms, um, uh, first, you know, we begin to negotiate what A, B, or C, that's the starting point. But also on individual assignments, first thing I announce is that uh, anything handed in on time can be rewritten for a higher grade, but I need it back in a week. Because I tell them I, I can't have, you know, 20 or 30 students show up with a suitcase of each of rewrites on the last day, last class of the semester. I said I couldn't possibly read them all and so on. So I ask them, I tell them, okay, when I, if I put a grade on the paper, like a B plus, I just don't put the grade, but I say, uh, if you want to rewrite for an A, here's things to look for. So each paper I read carefully. And I, I, give them, I give them guidance or direction about how I understand this to become an A paper. Now, uh, a whole bunch of students decide to rewrite for a higher grade, and I tell them the highest grade you get on any paper, it counts. So this also seems fair and um, useful to students. There are some students that will never rewrite, that uh, just simply don't have the time or the interest uh, to do it. And there are some students who sometimes rewrite a paper five times, and so on. So I'm constantly having an individual intensive tutorial within, with students. In addition to this group process, there's an individual tutorial, private mentoring that I have about the, their, their writing and their, their, their analysis. So I think that matters, that, uh, that I'm, I'm obliged to give grades. I would, I would rather not give grades, but I'm required to give grades by the institution. And so inside that requirement, I tell students that uh, any grade can be rewritten for a higher grade. But, um, uh, and I will, uh, you can come also, I, I, I have office hours and I invite students to come and be, uh, to tutor, that I will privately tutor them about uh, rewriting uh, their paper. So I have to be available. Uh, and, and nudge students into the rewrites. That the re and we all know as writing teachers that revision and rewriting are extremely important, that the first draft is very rough, the second draft rough, and so on, that uh, we all, all of us who write do multiple, multiple drafts, we know that. This is, this is not uh, realistic to demand a lot of extra drafts from students because not all of them want to become writers, and writing is just not that crucial to all of them. But in terms of like um, uh, becoming uh, more critically literate, it's not it's, it's not just linguistic form that the rewrite focuses on. For example, I'll say, look, you wrote four pages all in one paragraph, and there's no paragraphing. So I said, look, um, uh, so I say, look at this and decide where the, where are the paragraphs start and end in this, and then hand in for a higher grade. I'll say also this sentence goes on for twelve lines. So and I, I can't follow the 12 lines. So where does, you know, I say, make give that kind of advice. So that's what like uh, formal linguistic or grammatical advice. That's one side of the rewrite. The other side of the rewrite is that what are you saying and how are you looking into things? What is the, the level of inquiry? So hey, you said this, 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 you made this claim over here. Where's the evidence? And here you provide uh, 10 lines of evidence and then you never offer any claim about it. So I'm also speaking about the, um, the, the what's known as the rhetorical or argumentative 
argumentative uh, side. And at the end, uh, what's the takeaway that you want you want me to remember most, and so on and so on. So you know, I'm giving uh, grammatical advice, uh, linguistic advice, rhetorical advice, and how how to think it through as well as to write it. So this is this takes. This is the individual tutorial that occurs when I write notes on a paper to a student, inviting them to write for a higher grade, or they come to my office for a private uh, tutoring, private tutoring session. When I read um, when I read uh, Minus Shaughnessy's Errors and Expectations forty years ago, and when I read um, uh, Mike Rose, it seemed to me that there's a limit to what uh, group size writing classes can do. That writing was a very, very uh, tutorial undertaking, and you'll notice that um, that Mike, in his uh, in his book, is the famous book he published in 1989, that he is actually doing a lot of individual tutorial with his vets and other students, and advising them about how to how to craft whatever they're working on. Now, Mike also reports in that book that that's what was his most important education. He had mentors in high school and college who did that for him. So there's a, there's a subtext here that really uh, we may be misunderstanding completely the, the nature of writing instruction, that writing instruction may require very uh, intimate tutorials where we face exactly a writing task and a writing text and a, 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 a context or a contingency for what are you, who are you writing this for, what are you writing this for, and then we work on the the text that's being uh, produced. That's not a class. That's not a, a class lesson. That's not a syllabus. That's an individual tutorial focused on an individual um, product, and that's good. And that that's part of our writing teacher responsibility. Then we have to figure out well, what are classes, what are group sessions good for. What can you learn in the group session? So then we have to figure out uh, what can all of us benefit from studying, uh, not just these three because they can't figure out paragraphing. The other 20 have paragraphing down, okay? These six can't figure out sentence boundaries. The other 15, no sentence boundaries, okay? So how can we teach any of these uh, linguistic or grammatical items if a uh, whole part of the class already has some of it and the whole part of the class doesn't have it and yet we're going to teach it simultaneously to the whole class it's it's not sensible it's not productive so then one what i focus on as a critical teacher is the importance of the tutorial and the the individual um, mentoring of students and ask myself in the classroom setting what does what will be of benefit to everybody and so on Ira, I would I would love to end our conversation by you talking about and reflecting on your relationship with Paulo Freire. You mentioned earlier how you learned about this Brazilian educator who was thinking along the same lines as you in the late 1960s, 70s. Maybe you could spend some time here talking about how that friendship came to be and how much that friendship meant to you. Paulo Freire contacted me. I did not contact him. Uh, I suddenly uh, got a letter uh, in Manhattan where I was living in the early 80s, and it was an aerogram, you know, those thin blue um, pages. And I looked at the um, I looked at the return address and said, Paulo Ferry, Brazil. And I thought, oh, my God, what is, why is he writing me? So I opened the aerogram in the early 80s, and uh, he said that... Um, he got a copy of my first book, Critical Teaching and Everyday Life, 
and he he wanted to thank me for all the beautiful words. And uh, it, was, it was just wonderful. So um, it, it seems that, you know, uh, one of the Polyferg's youngest son went to um, uh, college in Ann Arbor, and uh, I had gone to Ann Arbor sometime, a few times, you know, to talk about, because they had a new program called Doctor of Arts, and uh, they were community college writing teachers. And um, when my first book came out, Critical Teaching Everyday Life, they, thought that they said to their professor, um, this is this is the only book that uh, talks about what we're living with. So they said, "You got to, we got to meet this guy." So I was invited out there, and I spent a week or so with them. And one of the uh, people there apparently gave Paulo a copy of that book, which Paulo took back to Brazil and he read. And then he wrote me a letter about the book, which I was amazed and so on. So uh, then um, uh, a few months later, I got a phone call. And Paulo Freire uh, was calling me from Stanford where he was doing a seminar. He's, he wanted me to fly out to California and join him in doing the seminar. So at that time, I was writing a new book. I had a um, a fellowship. I finally got some support to write a book that became Culture Wars, where I was studying educational policy and what I named the conservative restoration or how the authorities turned the tables on the experiments or the movements of the 1960s that came out in 1986. And so I was writing that book, and I told my, uh, I have to finish this before classes start, because here's another thing. When you teach in the uh, in the low-rent districts of the academy, it's very hard to get free time to be a scholar. So you, uh, I taught large classes and, law and, and large class loads, and the students required a lot of individual tutoring and so on, which meant that when the, the semesters began, uh, I was I, my my attention was taken up just being a, a teacher. So I had to use summers and the January break intensively to study and write the, the books that I that I wrote. So I told him I had to finish this book before classes began in September. So then he said to me, um, "Well, he's going to be in Amherst." The following February in residence there uh, in the School of Education, would I come up and uh, work with him there? So I said yes, because Amherst was very close to New York. I didn't have to fly Amherst, Massachusetts. So next uh, February, I came up there and met him, and uh, he was wonderful. He he was so friendly and uh, you know um, um, affectionate and um, welcoming. Uh, he embraced me, and he uh, you know it just brought me into his life and and asked me to sit with him when he did sessions, you know, very large sessions in front of students at the Amherst and uh, brought me on stage with him. And, and yeah, I was, I was very overwhelmed by it because uh, he introduced me to the audience as his son. And I thought, oh, my God, am I going to recover from this? You know, it's just it's so overwhelming. So uh, I made a few trips up there, made uh, three trips up there to spend time with him. And the last trip, I proposed that uh, we write a book together. And I said that I travel around the country, and this teachers who are interested in critical pedagogy keep asking the same questions from place to place. So I said, why don't we uh, write a book about these questions? So he said, let's start tomorrow, he said to me. We start tomorrow, he said. So I went back to the hotel room that night. I wrote out in hand by hand the questions that keep showing up, and I brought it to him the next day. And then he said, yes, we do the book, but we do a dialogue book. And uh, he, he named it a talking book. He gave it its name. 
and said, you and I, we will talk and dialogue on each of these questions. So that's uh, the genesis of a pedagogy for liberation. I spent the next two years traveling wherever he was, and we kept uh, producing uh, uh, the next draft, four or five drafts of this book. And each chapter you will see uh, begin is uh, the title of each chapter is a question, a main question that teachers had been asking me as I travel around America, and then we dialogue on that uh, that question. So I spent a lot of time with him, and uh, I sat in on many, many of his seminars, and I paid careful attention to the, how he answered questions, what how he conceived of what what was the, what lawyers call the gravamen or the heart, the problem of each question that came up about uh, motivation and about everyday uh, life and about reading and writing and what was their importance. And I was uh, very closely attending to how he framed his uh, responses. And I noticed that he never lectured, that he wanted all the audiences to raise the questions uh, that um, uh, pushed the uh, the meeting meeting uh, forward. And, uh, you know, we went to a lot of dinners. He loved to eat, and uh, we we drank his favorite wine, and uh, we he told funny stories and tragic stories from his uh, life. So we did a lot of laughing and also a lot of uh, sadness because of when he was separated from his family, he was arrested, he forced to travel without a passport. So, you know, there were a lot of troubles, and there was also a lot of wonderful times and all the things meant. And then he told me that uh, he said... Uh, he said, you must travel as much as you can, he said, uh, because he thought that um, traveling, and, and he said, you must talk with as many people as possible because uh, all, all of us get sort of locked into a very provincial uh, life or provincial way of seeing the world, especially if you're an American and, you know, in charge of the whole world and more powerful and rich than anybody uh, as a country. And... Um, and you have to hear how other people talk and live and what matters to them and let that listen to that. He always said that it's very hard to talk with anyone until you have listened to them for a long time and they have told you how they see the, how they see the world. So it uh, you know it's wonderful and um, uh, we did a uh, 70th anniversary celebration for him in 1991. At the new school in New York, we had a uh, celebration conference, and uh, so I began producing more books along the way. And um, then I met him. Uh, he was in. He would call me whenever he came uh, to the states and talk of this or that. And uh, so he came to New York and uh, was on his en route to Harvard. And uh, he called me, and we met in downtown Manhattan for lunch. And um, he did not look well to me, and so um, looked, looked looked tired, and I was worried about him. Um, so I said, "Look, um, you know," I said, I, "I told him that this was like 20 years ago when he died in 1997." I said, "You know, I'm working with a group of uh, writing teachers in the Four C's, and this is when we started the working class uh, culture group in the Four C's, and it was a, just a wonderful group of folks." And I said, you know, um, we're, we're trying to figure out how to raise the question of class and social class and put it more into circulation in our teaching and in the field and so on. I said, and these folks, some of these folks, they, they would like to come to Harvard to meet you when you're there in the fall. So he said, yes, yes, absolutely. So he said, I should bring them to Harvard. So we, you know, we had lunch and we hugged 
and uh, we made a date that uh, in the fall uh, I would bring this group of folks to Harvard with me and so on. And then Paolo died. He died May 2nd, 1977. And uh, word spread over the internet in a hurry and just terrible. We were very sad. I was very sad. Cried a lot. Used to cry in airplane bathrooms when I was traveling on the road because suddenly I would burst into tears uh, without warning. And so I, I tried to rush into the bathroom and lock the door so um didn't create too much of a scene uh, on the airplanes as I traveled around. So he had a, a very deep impact on many of us, and especially in uh, my way of thinking about you know, um, how important it is to work outside the classroom. Uh, he developed literacy methods that you could use class by class and um, lesson plan by lesson plan, but he understood it was all under the umbrella of political movements that uh, needed this type of education to fuel uh, their success. And that without this connection to that larger project, he wasn't sure about what a, the, a local classroom could accomplish in isolation. Thanks, Ira. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.